Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So we're starting a new worship series. Um, I'm sure you didn't expect this. Uh, as the saying goes, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. Um, no one expects heresy. But we're going to talk about it, not from let's identify people who are a problem or let's talk about things that are running rampant, but let's talk about how thought can really change the way we look at others, the way we look at how we are present in the world and what we are doing. Let's look at thought like that. So we're gonna begin with a specific heresy, and I do also wanna clarify that at no point am I advocating that we label people heretics. I'm not real big on labeling of people anyway, and when you use the term heretic for a human being, you're kind of saying that they are irredeemable. I mean, how much worse can you get than telling somebody you are dialectically opposed to healthy, good Christianity? That's pretty bad. And so we're not gonna be doing that. Instead, we're gonna be talking about thoughts, concepts, theologies, theology being knowledge of God, that is considered to be heretical. It's considered to be in conflict with orthodox Christianity. Orthodox meaning right thought. So these are the things that we believe are true, generally across the denominations and the huge breadth of the Christian family. Things like, we believe in the triune God who has revealed God's self to us in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in the salvation that has come to us through Jesus Christ and his sacrificial love for us. We believe that God's grace is unmerited favor, that God chooses to love us and chooses to forgive us, that we might be transformed. These are the things that we all come back to as much as we might discuss and diverge on any other theologies or thoughts. It is here that we always come back together. And so the first one that we're going to talk about is called supersessionism. And there is no spelling test later on that. Supersessionism, uh, it means to supersede. And sometimes this is referred to as replacement theology. So whom or what are we replacing? Well, it actually goes back to the very problem that the Apostle Paul is addressing in Romans. Hard to believe that Jesus has just been crucified, resurrected, and ascended, and it doesn't take very long for people to start to wonder, who is God's favorite? Who does God love the most? In fact, I have a shirt one time that my mother bought me that says, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. And I was wearing it one time at a mall, back when we used to go to the mall, and the young woman who was the cashier goes, how do you know that's true? And I said, I'm clergy. She goes, you win. <laughs> but it's the question, right? Does God have a favorite? And if God has a favorite, is it us? And does God have enough love and grace and forgiveness to go around for everyone? That's kind of at the base of that question, right? Can God love us all? Is God able to do that? Well. If you sit and think about it, of course God can love all people. The Gospel of John proclaims that in 3.16. For God so loved the world. God loves all of us. It's quite possible. God doesn't need to say, you know what? I'm done with you, and I'm shifting over here. 
right? That's not what's happening. And the Apostle Paul is trying to get people not to fall for that emotional thought downward spiral. He's saying to them, I ask then, has God rejected his people, his people, the people of Israel, the people that God created and then saved, the people that God brought through the, wildering of, uh, the wandering in the wilderness, the people that God brought into the promised land. We were talking about the first five books of the Bible right there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that entire description of creating and cultivating a people, saving them and then bringing them to this place where they could be happy and free. Is that over? for God's people who are the Jews at this point in time? By no means, says Paul. And Paul says, here's why I'm qualified to talk about this. I am an Israelite, I'm one of these people. I am a descendant of Abraham, genealogically as well as spiritually. And I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So if anybody has the ability to speak authoritatively on the covenant that was given at Mount Sinai, Paul is saying it's him. Notice he stops just short of going, and I used to be a Pharisee. Who used to persecute these people? Knows when to stop. Appreciate that about Paul. Knows when to draw back a little bit. But what he says is, God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. And even the prophet Elijah kind of wrestled with that. Did they make mistakes? Oh, yes. Old Testament's filled with examples of that. Absolutely. The New Testament is filled with examples of Christians making mistakes. And the annals of history are filled with everybody making mistakes. But Jesus gives us an opportunity to be invited in. There was a time where people started to look and say, well, Jesus clearly didn't want us to be Jewish anymore. He wanted us to be something new. And it didn't take very long because a lot of the early Christians suddenly stopped being Jews that convert to Christianity and start being Gentiles who become Christians. And then the question is, is there enough room at God's divine table in God's home for Jews and Christians? Is there enough room there? And it probably comes from a deep-seated fear within human beings about, am I loved, am I accepted, and is God going to save me? It's probably fueling some of that fear. But what Paul is saying to the early church is, yes, you don't have to worry about them. And our gathering liturgy from Leviticus says the same thing. By the book of Leviticus, God's people, the Israelites, have already messed up a few hundred times. And God is saying, it's okay, still going to kick you through this, I'm still going to be your God, and you are still going to be my people, and we are going to get there. But then suddenly, it's like Christians started to think, you know what, maybe it's over for them, and now we're it. We're the new favorite. Instead, there was a misconception, a, a thought about we can only be the ones. God can only have one chosen people. But if that's true, because they understood themselves to be a people of the new covenant in Jesus' blood, the covenant and the language that we talk about in the liturgy of Holy Communion, then the fear is, well, there can't be enough room for more than one covenant. Well, of course there can be. There are so many covenants throughout the Bible. There's a covenant with Noah, the Noahide covenant, when Noah and the animals and his family come out of the ark, and God says, I am going to hang my bow in the sky, I'm going to put away my weapon of war, and no longer will I ever destroy the water by flood, the world by flood. I will never do that again. So God makes covenant, not just with Noah, but all creation, never to do that again. 
I think we all can agree that we would like to not resend that covenant, right? Unless you think you are an epic 40-day, 40-night swimmer. We don't want that to happen. Then there's the covenant at Mount Sinai, sometimes referred to as the Mosaic Covenant because Moses was there, helping to translate what God was saying to God's people. And so the covenant at Mount Sinai, of course, uses that same language. I will be your God and you will be my people. And in order to help you be good people, I will give you the law so that when you mess up, not if, but when, we know how to fix it. That's what the law was intended to do. So if we believe as Christians that God has replaced that first covenant with God's people at Mount Sinai, with the covenant in Jesus, we've already got a problem. Because we're not the latest covenant. In fact, foretold all the way back in Genesis is the covenant that God would make with our other sibling in the Abrahamic faith, Islam. And they came after both Judaism and Christianity. And I don't think any one of us would like to have our covenant revoked. And so you have to be very careful when you start working down the road of what is God doing now and who is God's favorite. And I don't think it came from people wanting to hurt other people. I don't think that was the genesis of that idea. But it's a very real problem. And it works out in surprising ways. In fact, what we end up finding is that as Paul ends that, that part of his letter to Romans by saying, it is by grace it is not by our works. It is not what we do. It is what God does. And otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace if that wasn't what it was. We can't earn God's grace. We can't choose to be God's favorites by behaving ourselves more than our other siblings. We can't do that. Instead, it's about God opening the doors a little wider. It's about God expanding the walls and saying, I will make more space for more people to gather with me, to break bread at my table in heaven, and to be invited into the kingdom to come. God is not saying, out with the old, in with the new. God is saying, all of you are being made new, and all of you are welcome here. But what ends up happening is that that curiosity, that thought about can God still love those people? Can God do that? It starts to filter through the years. And in fact, by the first 125 years after Jesus, already there are theologians and patriarchs in the church starting to wonder, why does Judaism still exist? Why are they here? And in fact, that conversation will continue through the ages. It will continue all the way through the 1500s, but it will be picked up by another surprising person. You know, none of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. And some of us have the opportunity to use our gifts and graces and our power, our privilege, and our podiums or pulpits in order to share with other people theology and thoughts and conversation about God that can truly transform people. One of those people was Martin Luther. Now, you might have heard of Martin Luther. He is the namesake for the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but he is also known as the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. It is this revolution that happens where a lot of new ideas are able to even be openly discussed, and then Christianity starts to create space for divergence. And we owe that to Martin Luther. 
Martin Luther was a good practicing Catholic priest in Germany and he loved his people that were entrusted into his care. He loved them so much that he started to look at the world and, and look at it through the lens that they were and started to look at it. And if you look at something too long, you can kind of find some problems with it, which is what Martin does. And he starts to do what a lot of us do. He sits around and he thinks about what's wrong. And then he does something that most of us would hear is very healthy. He starts to write it all down. You know, all 95 complaints about the church. And then he does what some of us would think, well, that's pretty uh, brave, but I'm not sure that that was helpful. He nailed it to the doors of the church, <laughs> just so that everybody knew where he was at. And what ended up happening was that he was naming things that most of Christianity now appreciates. He was naming that the scriptures had been kept in a language that people did not speak. It was being kept in Latin, and most common people had ceased to even speak Latin, and they couldn't read it, and so they didn't have access to the scriptures. And Martin said, this is not right. People need to have God's word. They need to be able to read it for themselves and have the Holy Spirit helping them to understand it. And so he said, the Bible should be in the vernacular of the people. And Rome said, no, it should not. And he said, you know, and while we're at it, let's talk about indulgences. Let's talk about telling people that they have to buy forgiveness and grace which was a practice that had become so prevalent that people who were poor couldn't have access to grace. And Martin said, that's not right. We can't do that. Everybody should have grace. God already paid for it. You shouldn't have to pay for it again. But again, Rome said, we respectfully disagree with you. And so what ended up happening was that as they went through the list of the 95 things that Martin had an issue with, they ended up actually coming to him and saying to him in a trial, did you write all this? And he says, yes. And they said, do you still believe it? And he said, I would like to respectfully ask for one night. I would like to go and read my scripture and pray and discern and think about it and see if I still believe all of this. And in a real moment of magnanimity and, and grace, they said yes. And so he went and almost all of his complaints were grounded in scripture. He uses a lot of citation. And so he went back and he read those texts and he prayed about it and he thought about it. And the next day when he came back to them, he said, did I write these things? Yes. Do I believe them? Yes, I do. And they said, that's great. You're out. Because now he was a heretic. They had labeled him a heretic. And what ends up happening at that point is that it creates space for the rest of us who haven't come from the Catholic Church. If you came from any other tradition to find yourself here in this sanctuary today, then it is because of Martin Luther's willingness to stand boldly out front and say that other people should be allowed at the table, that other understandings of God's grace and how church should work are okay. And he was so incredible about doing that that he really did become kind of the patron saint of Germany. And in fact, he becomes the patron saint of the denomination that is founded and still bears his name to this day, Lutheranism. And this is kind of the national uh, denomination of Christianity in Germany, and it is spread all over the world. You can find Lutherans here in the United States and all over the world you can find Lutherans. They have done incredible things in the world. And their theology 
is incredible to look at how he was able to take the things that were really troublesome to him in, in Catholicism and not abandon them, but tweak them through his understanding of God and who God is. And if you've ever heard the hymn, a mighty bulwark is our God, or a mighty fortress is our God, then you know that that's Martin. It's a fantastic processional hymn. It's got a real strong drum beat, you know, very Germanic. And it's an incredible way to be reminded as you sing it that God is your sanctuary. God will keep you safe. God will forgive you. God will uphold you. And that we don't have to fear anything because God is with us. And so Martin Luther has blessed us in rich ways. But like all of us, Martin Luther was a human being and flawed. And supersessionism, that replacement theology about Judaism, became a problem for him. As he got a little older, as sometimes some people do, he got a little crankier. And he started to get frustrated. When he was younger, he used to look at Jews and Judaism and go, oh, well, you know what? God is really gracious to have Jews still on the planet because we are able to see the people from whence Jesus came. We are able to see the religion that brought us Jesus, that religion that's testified to in the Old Testament. We are able to have living history here with us. Not that you want to use an entire group of people as like an example of living history for you, but you, know, you can understand that he was trying to find some redemptive spin on this. But then what ends up happening is the longer he's alive and the more there are Jews, he starts to go, well, why are they still here? Why haven't they converted? We all know Jesus. Why wouldn't you want to be Christian? Why wouldn't you convert? And it started to really get him angry. There's a lot of frustration for him. And because he was so respected and, and such an incredible thinker and theologian that he used to write down these thoughts. And in fact, what I'm about to read to you comes from Luther's works, the Bound Collection. This is volume 47. He wrote a lot. It wasn't just the 95 complaints. Wrote a lot. And in a section that is called The Christian in Society, Part 4, is a section entitled On the Jews and Their Lives which Martin Luther wrote in 1543. And in it, he deals very openly with the concept of supersessionism. Are these people still supposed to be here? And he concludes, no. And this is what he writes. What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? He's going to give you seven pieces of advice. The first is to set fire to their synagogues or schools, and to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn, so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews. Sixth, I advise that usury be prohibited to them and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. And lastly, number seven, I recommend putting a flail, an axe, a hoe, a spade, a distaff, or a spindle into the hands of young, strong Jews and Jewesses and letting them earn their bread in the sweat of their brow as was imposed on the children of Adam, Genesis chapter three, verse 19. 
And if you have ever in your studies examined World War II and the Holocaust, which our Judaic siblings in faith call the Shoah, then you know that some of those very same things were done. They were carried out almost verbatim because Martin Luther was so beloved and respected that starting in 1543, these thoughts began to be perpetuated in the thoughts and lives and teachings of others. They started to internalize what he was saying. It's kind of a latent thing waiting to germinate later when the Nazis come into power. And if you've ever wrestled with why is it that so many people were willing to be party to mass genocide, it's not entirely because of this, but this is a contributing factor. Most historians from that period and in that specialty will tell you that this significantly changed the way that Germans thought about their Jewish neighbors. It will also tell you that throughout history, it's not just Martin Luther, and he's not the only genesis of it, that people have continually wrestled with supersessionism, especially in Christianity, about whether or not Jews should still be here. And if they shouldn't be here, then what should we do with them? And so the Holocaust, the Shoah, is an example of the power of thought. It is something that gets into our minds, that filters into our hearts. It is something that then becomes part of our vernacular and our language. And it is finally something that we start to embody, something that we start to live out. Because if God can't love them anymore, then why should I? And if God doesn't love them in the same way, then maybe God hates them. I love the quick jump from, if God doesn't love them as favored anymore, then God must hate them. But that is truly how that thought process went. And so you start to see that lived out to the detriment of millions of Jews. And Jewish scholars have spent so much time tracing these texts. Where did this come from? Why? Why did it happen? It didn't happen because Martin Luther is evil. It didn't happen because Martin Luther betrayed all the good that he had ever done and we should wipe Martin Luther out of the history books of the annals of Christianity and the annals of world history and forget about him because of this, what he did. That's not accurate either. We don't decide then to label somebody a heretic and make them unforgiven. Because I believe that if Martin Luther could be here today and could see the effects of the things that he wrote, maybe out of haste and anger, I believe that he would be totally repentant and sorry. Because that's not who Martin Luther wanted to be. He wanted to be somebody that advocated for others. He wanted to make sure that everybody could be invited to the table. But like all of us, he got a little crooked in this area. And because of it, people suffered. Now, most of us will never have a heretical thought or a heretical theology that will cause mass genocide. Most of us won't do that. But all of us have a sphere of influence. We have people in our homes, in our families, in our friendship circles, in our schools, in our jobs, in our community, who listen to us. And they're paying attention to the nuances of our language. And so if we start to embody these ideas of replacement theology, 
that will come out. It doesn't stay hidden forever. It kind of slips in there. And next thing you know, because they love and respect you, because they know you and they've seen you do so many wonderful things, including for them, they start to adopt those ideas. That's precisely what happened with Martin Luther. People saved over 47 volumes of his writing because he was so powerful, because his thoughts changed the world and changed people for the better. But he was bound to have a bad thought. He was bound to do something that wasn't entirely good and of God, and he did. But unfortunately, this is what people took and internalized. This was the problem. Could you imagine Martin Luther sitting at the table with the Apostle Paul going, why are you people still here? And Paul going, why are you here? Jesus was coming back. Why were you even here? The two of them wouldn't even agree on time and space. But they could both agree on the salvation and transformative power of Jesus Christ. And that's where we have to come back. This series that we're going to explore over the next few weeks is not about saying to anybody, supersessionism should get you thrown out of the church. It's not about saying to anybody, we need to start identifying heresies and eradicating it. We are not about to become the Spanish Inquisition. That is not what it's about. It's about empowering us to look at how we think and feel and then seeing how it shapes how we speak and act so that we don't repeat the sad tragedy of supersessionism. Too many people have suffered and died over that. And at no point does Jesus say that, by the way. At no point does Jesus go, you know, out with the old and with the new, looking for some real good Gentiles. Jesus never does that. Instead, Jesus says, I have come for all. I have come that the sick children of Israel should be healed. I have come that those who didn't even realize that they were God's children would recognize their adoption, that God has loved you into salvation and grace. And that thought is completely different from there can only be one chosen people. If we have any concept of theology, and the Trinity points to it, that God is so vast and amazing and powerful that no human being could fully encapsulate God, that God chooses to reveal God's self to us in the three persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just so that we could have some hope of grasping the incredible nature of our God, then we should know that it would be absolute hubris to think that we are the favorites. It would be absolutely ridiculous to think that God can't make space for all of us, not just in God's home eternal in the heavens, but in God's heart. And when you start hearing things out of the mouths of people, not just Christians, but out of the mouths of people, you start to think about what is behind those statements. What are they standing upon? What is the foundation? Because my siblings in Christ, we have but one firm foundation. We stand on the cornerstone. A cornerstone who knew what it was like to be betrayed and rejected. A cornerstone who knew that words and thoughts could become action and betrayal and death. A cornerstone who said, I have come that all might be saved. And our thoughts 
should really be centered on that. In the United Methodist Church, we have a book of discipline that has both history, doctrine, and polity in it. And oftentimes people will say, well, what is it that that Methodists believe about heaven or hell or death or the afterlife? And the answer is, we don't have a position on that, which is not real comforting to some people. Because if you're spending a lot of time thinking about heaven and hell and death and the afterlife, and they're all kind of in the same sphere, If you're thinking about that, then you're looking for knowledge that will bring you stability and comfort. And then for Methodism to go, well, what do you think? Doesn't really give you much comfort. But the truth of many Christian families of theology is that we focus more on what is central. You don't have to worry about eternal separation from God. You don't have to worry about eternal death. You don't have to worry about whether or not there's a place for you in God's house. Because Jesus has shown us that God loves you and forgives you and grants you all the grace that you will ever need, want, or use and still have extra. For we have a God who is not just sufficient but abundant. And so your ability to fill in those blanks, to think about that, for some of us is exciting. It's an opportunity to use our minds. For others, it leaves a little bit of angst and discombobulation. But at the end of the day, we all come back to the same Savior. No matter what happens as we reach the end of our life, no matter what happens when we breathe our last year, no matter what awaits us on the other side, the same Christ is here with us and for us for all time. So those thoughts should become central to how we think and how we feel about ourselves, our loved ones, and others, and the decisions that we make about what we're going to speak and how we're going to act should reflect that understanding of Jesus Christ. If you embody that grace and that theology, you will never go wrong. Choosing to love all people Choosing to grant grace as you have been forgiven is never a bad idea. It is never a heretical thought. It is always a good and right and joyful thing, always and everywhere. So may you, in your time of pondering and reflecting, in your time of meditating on God's word and the experiences of worship this day, may you feel empowered and encouraged to use the very best of your theology, the theology that speaks much more profoundly than words and deep within your spirit to say, you are my people, you are my beloved, and because of God's grace in you, I will always be pleased. And may you use that to speak and act and be with others in right relationship. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.